Hello, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Claybo, your host. And on today's episode, we're going to continue where we left off with a conversation with G. Andrew Duffy. Please enjoy. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. And you know, I know several people who have gotten into advocate roles uh, because they had a blog or because they had um, a YouTube channel or because they had a presence, right? Mm-hmm. But if you talk to them, you know, they didn't start that presence four or five years ago for anybody else. They did it for themselves, right? Yeah. It was something that, that, like you said, they had passion for, they loved, and they wanted to try something new. And like with, with blogging, right? I know several people who say, I write the post for myself because I'll come back a year later and I'll be like, oh, yep. yeah, that's how that works, right? So, so I think another aspect of it is, like you said, pick a medium that you enjoy mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter if you're doing it for anybody else, right? Right. And if you are doing it and, and you're growing in that, you're going to have more people find you. Yeah. So. And I, I think one of the other keys really is also kind of to stop occasionally and examine why you're doing things, right? So I blogged for a long, long time. I started my first blog in 2004 or two, 2000, yeah, around 2003, 2004 on the blogs.asp.net platform. And then eventually, you know, kind of broke off on my own, you know, doing my own domain and, and whatnot since I had more control over it. And it, it's funny because over the years, part of what I was blogging for was to share knowledge, but part of it was also kind of, it was a platform to experiment with technologies. So I had my blog at one point running on Orchard, on uh, Graffiti CMS, right? Several of these, you know, .NET based CMS platforms. And I would, you know, I would go into the guts of it and customize it to the point where then it would break when I'd try to do an upgrade. And I realized I was, I was just making headaches for myself. And it was like, you know, there was a part of me that thought that there was a that there was a certain there was a certain legitimacy that came from kind of blogging on the same platform that I was writing about and working with and whatnot. That maybe there was some credibility there. Like, hey, I got some cred because I'm on Orchard instead of just some other thing. And then I finally got over myself and got host. You know, got hosted WordPress. Actually, no. First, I got over myself and installed WordPress on Azure. So I, was, so I was like, I hadn't, obviously I hadn't learned my lesson, right? It was like, okay, well, I've got my Azure website. I'll, I'll just install WordPress on there and configure it so that I have the ultimate control. And I do like, I strongly recommend it. if people are going to use WordPress for blogging, I would definitely recommend locking it down at least, you know, at least hit the low hanging fruit 
because by default, it's not necessarily, you know, there's some easy targets, let's put it that way. But what I realized is it's like, I don't need to have my fingers in the guts of my blog, period, full stop. And I went to a hosting company and I bought two years worth of hosted WordPress, pointed my domain to it, migrated my content. And what I realized is it's like, I also don't have as much urge to blog as I used to. So it's like, it's there for archival purposes. And funny thing is like, I actually have a blog post, which was something around like using remote desktop with some with some virtualization software. I don't even remember the, the details of it. But I continue to get comments on that blog post to this day from people who are still finding it useful. That apparently the, the virtualization software still hasn't fixed the issue that I was posting a workaround to. And so people are still searching it, finding it, and complimenting me for the fact that I helped them solve a problem. <laughs> It's like, all right, that is what you call a long tail evergreen blog post right there. I mean, this is probably 10 years later that this blog post is still helping people. And it's funny that you mentioned like, you know, posting stuff so that you can go find it later. I'll sometimes do that with stuff that I forgot I wrote. Like I'll go, you know, search for some, some thing that's, that's bothering me. And in the first page is one of my blog posts it's that I forgot that I wrote. You'll, it's like you Google yourself. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> Wow. So that's cool. and, and you know, you know, you've been blogging for a while when that happens because you've had enough time to forget that you wrote it, <laughs> and yet it's still out there floating around. So definitely. So for your 3D printing, uh, do you write .NET programs to, to control it and do things, or you just use the software that comes with it? So I don't do this is gonna sound like heresy. Oh um, no. So the platform that I that I'm working with right now, OutSystems, the company that I work with is based on top of .NET. So technically, I'm writing .NET, but sort of at, at a higher order, right? It's a programming platform that's visual-based, that's kind of got a lot of the DevOps stuff built in. And so I use, so like the candy dispenser, for example, right? It used mobile device, camera, actually had NFC, right? Now, all of that stuff was under the covers, effectively running .NET code. So for example, REST APIs are based on .NET Web API. So yes, I'm, right, I'm using .NET in my, in my 3D printing endeavors, but not directly, if that makes sense. Well, so. and without systems, right, the focus is low-code or low-code environments. And, and we've had discussions on that before, mm -hmm. right? Some people look at it a little funny, but, <laughs> um, but, but it has its place, right? If you, if you use it for what it's intended for, Right. It can make your life a lot easier. Yeah. And what I what I mentioned earlier, the thing that caught me when I was, you know, going through the process of evaluating if this is someplace I wanted to work was it really did remind me a lot of the things that I liked about VB. But as I, as I said before, VB, one of the challenges that I think a lot of people had, and I was one of them, was you go from this visual metaphor, which makes a lot of sense, like I've got a form, I've got buttons, I've got fields, I've got all of this. And you double click and suddenly you're in this stranger in a strange land code land, right? Which if you're an experienced programmer is totally fine, right? It's a metaphor that makes sense to you. But if you're somebody who is like I was at the time, not a professional programmer, didn't really have much of a clue about properly architecting code, right? You write a bunch of stuff inside of a button handler and you end up with a big hairy mess that is utterly not, you know, not maintainable, doesn't perform well, buggy as all get out. So there's a, there's 
there's sort of that, you know, you want someone when they're, when they're experiencing something like that to fall into the pit of success. And for a lot of people, that first double clicking a button in VB was falling into the pit of failure, right? I wrote programs that worked, right? I wrote a MIDI player that I thought was really cool. I wrote a, a I wrote an application that I put in the startup folder of my wife's computer to flash a bunch of parts on the screen for Valentine's Day. Terribly cheesy programs, right? Not not high quality in any way, shape, or form, but they worked, right? They did what I wanted them to do, and that was the thing that hooked me at that time. What I find with OutSystems is, right, the the visual metaphor lasts longer, right? VB is an abstraction, right? At the end of the day, what's running is is ones and zeros being shoved into registers, right? We build these higher level abstractions to make it easier for us to program, to make it easier for us to conceptualize, to make it easier for us to be productive. And like, like VB, OutSystems is effectively an abstraction. And it happens to be an abstraction on top of .NET because that's the platform that the company chose to build on top of. Now, one of the gripes that people have about VB or about abstractions in general is, well, you, but it's a leaky abstraction. Right, you got that with um, web forms was another one where people really would complain about. Well, web forms is a leaky abstraction. It's like, yeah, all abstractions to one extent or another are leaky. The question is, are the trade offs that you're making worth it? And for what for what particular workloads or projects does this tool in your tool belt make sense? Right, I'm not going to you know sit here on the Adventures in .NET podcast and tell everybody, hey, y'all should just dump .NET and come on over to OutSystems because it probably doesn't make sense. Right, that's not people aren't just going to whole hog give up everything that they're used to and that they know. But I think that whether it's OutSystems, OutSystems, whether it's other things, I think the fundamental challenge that OutSystems as a company tries to address is the fact that there are way, way, way more applications that need to be written than there are developers to write them right now. And that's a huge problem in our industry. And it's one that, yes, we can solve some of that by training more developers, by getting more people interested in technology. We can, we can certainly try to solve that problem at the supply end, right? We don't have enough developers. Let's make more developers, right? Let's get people excited about technology. Let's teach them how to program, right? Let's you know emphasize STEM or STEAM or however, whichever acronym we're doing today in the schools, right? I mean, I think that those things are definitely a part of the solution. But I think that we also have to address it from the platform standpoint, right? And and the reality is I can have a working application in a matter of hours or days without systems that would take me days or weeks if I was writing it by hand. And that's not to say that one is superior over the other. They solve different problems, right? In order for me to take advantage of the productivity that I get from a platform like OutSystems, I have to accept some of the, the opinionated decisions that the platform makes, right? There are trade-offs that you're making there. And for some people, that's not going to be an appealing trade-off at all. I mean, I know that there, there are definitely people who want to have their hands in the guts of the code. They want to see what's happening, right? And when I say see what's happening, I kind of do some air quotes there because again, right? At the end of the day, we're pushing ones and zeros into latches and registers in a CPU. So which part of seeing what's actually happening, like it fundamentally comes down to whose abstractions are you trusting 
Because you've got to trust any of the abstractions that are below the level of where you're actually programming. You've made the decision to trust that those abstractions are efficient and effective and doing what you want them to do. How far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? And, yeah, exactly. And I'm perfectly I mean, fine being at the .NET C sharp level. <laughs> <laughs> well, and like I remember back in the day, so like my I came up on Commodore computers. So I don't know how many of you might be familiar with that. My very first program I wrote was was typing from a magazine line by line into a Commodore pet that I had borrowed from my school and brought home. And when my when my mom thought when I told my mom I was going to be bringing home a pet, she assumed animal. And then we went to pick it up and it's this big honk and metal case, you know, heavy computer. And you're like, oh, that's not what I thought, you know, but I would type in these, you know, these programs and make rocket ships fly up the screen and whatnot. And I was hooked. And I later had a Commodore 64. And I, and I remember, I think shortly after I got my first PC clone, getting into the world of not writing them because I just wasn't, I wasn't nearly skilled enough, but but seeing people's assembler demos where people would write these music and, and visual, these trippy music and visual, visual things that were in like 10K executables and they were tiny and they blew away anything that you could, anything else that you could see on a computer of that day. And the whole competition for these people was how much how much audio and visual amazement can I pack into the smallest possible package size, right? And so to do that, they were writing it all in assembler. Now, I had no interest then, and I have no interest now in learning how to write assembler, right? It, it's just not something there's, I don't have enough reason to dive down that particular rabbit hole, as you put it. But I, have, I had, haven't had great admiration for the people who had the skill to build these amazing experiences using assembler code. By the same token, I don't have a whole lot of interest in becoming an, a deep expert in C++, but I've written C++ code. Why? Because I, I'm, I am into IoT stuff. And there are certain IoT platforms where the only option you have to program that particular microprocessor is C++. So I learned enough along the way to write C++ code that would do what I needed it to do on those microcontrollers, right? And so to some extent, I think we, we do what we're, we use the tools that we're forced to sometimes, right? If, if you hand me a microcontroller and you say, this is the, the language you need to program it with, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll scrounge through and, and make it work. But we also, I, I think each of us as individuals have kind of our own preferred flavor of development. I mean, I'm still like, I have a love-hate relationship with JavaScript, right? I love JavaScript for its ubiquity. I love that I can pretty much just about anywhere write JavaScript. I even bought a couple of microcontrollers that use JavaScript out of the box because that was just a cool idea. One of them, I think it was called the Esperino. So I think it was supposed to be like Espresso right? The, the, the idea of instead of Java. And so it's like Espresso <laughs> and Arduino. I mean, really a little bit of a, of a stretch in terms of the naming, but it was a cool little platform. And I could do, I actually did a, a number of different conference talks built around the Esprino and some of the other IoT boards. But at the end of the day, is JavaScript the only thing that I want to write with? No, because it's too fiddly. It's, <laughs> it's really easy to harm yourself badly. <laughs> 
not as badly as C++, but I've certainly spent more than my fair share of time in the browser developer tools trying to figure out what stupid thing I did with JavaScript this time, because usually it's always me. I mean, it's never the language, right? Only a bad carpenter well, blames his tools. Well, I think as a language, JavaScript allows you very easily to make mistakes that aren't necessarily obvious up front. Yes. It's because it is so loose. That's one of its, right? One of its biggest benefits and also one of its biggest limitations or, or downfalls, right? So, yeah. and that's why we have Blazor. <laughs> <laughs> How's Blazor going for you, Caleb? I actually haven't written much yet, but we're getting there. Andrew was talking about architect stuff. And, and you know, I recently started an architect job. And I'm having to sell Blazor in certain instances. Like our, we got a couple of new projects coming up and our CTO said he wanted to do it in Angular because that's what the outsourcing company is writing some of these apps in. And I had to prove that for my team, it would make a lot more sense to use Blazor and the reasons why and the benefits we'd get out of it. So hopefully before the end of the year, we'll be, we'll be writing some. I've done some experimental stuff and started building some template things, but we're getting there slowly but surely. So I'm curious, that brings up the idea of, I'd love to get your take on demo code versus real code. Because one of the things that as an advocate, and mm-hmm. you know, this is something I would definitely highlight for people who are interested in advocacy as a discipline, is that for the most part as an advocate, you don't get to spend a lot of time writing production level code, right? You write a lot of demos. And I used to joke when I was at Microsoft that that with the way that things would roll out in terms of new versions of Visual Studio or new versions of ASP.NET or whatever, it felt like sometimes I would just spend my entire career writing Hello World in the next version of Visual Studio or what it's like that was that felt like that was the level of code that we kind of stayed perennially stuck at. That you know you're kind of wide but but not terribly deep. So what's your sense in terms of like, you, you mentioned like, okay, I've had a chance to, to kind of, you know, do maybe some proof of concept stuff with Blazor, but mm-hmm. not build anything quote unquote real. Do you find that to be a struggle when, when you're trying to learn something like, do you, do you try to seek out real world projects, real world in the sense of, okay, I want to tackle a real use case mm-hmm. with this as a means of learning it rather than just, right. okay, go follow the tutorial. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've put together the curriculum, and I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people, and now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a master class. It's going to be a four-week master class where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. I think, I think it depends on the person. For mm-hmm. me, I do like going to Pluralsight or O'Reilly right? Reading some of their books or watching some of their videos. And even in some of these videos, they're like, hey, do not use this code in production. Right? Because, <laughs> right, because the whole point of the, the demo code is to, to show you some of the patterns and practices and, and to teach you, right? So that you can take that code and write your... When it comes to like deep real world use cases, it is really hard to find ones that might meet your needs. Mm-hmm. And even if you do, 
to be able to dig into those codes and fully understand it without having written it yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So when it comes to building a production app, it's one of those things that if you're given that runway or that time to actually build it with the experience you've had from previous work, hopefully you will take the new technology and the new implementations they have or the new patterns mm-hmm. and be able to build it in a production manner so that it is ready when you release it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, so to give you an example, back in the day when I was still at Microsoft, I would periodically do things like host websites. Like, yeah, I joined the Knights of Columbus and the Knights chapter that I was a part of had the most horrific website you can possibly imagine. I mean, it was horrible, terrible, really, really bad. So I offered, of course, being a geek, I could probably fix this for you, right? So I built a fairly simple and straightforward ASP.NET website, built it out and hosted it long enough for them to find another platform, you know, like a paid platform that was really targeted towards Knights of Columbus councils so that it really had a lot more of the functionality that they needed. But it's like in the, in that span of time, that span of several years, right? I was able to, to both have a real world problem to solve. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a deep or enterprise level you know, problem to solve, but it was, I'm not going through and just building tutorials. I'm building something real that people actually have to use. And I think that that's kind of the distinction that I was getting after was, was just that tutorials can take you a certain amount. And I I really appreciate the comment about don't use this in production, but we all know that everybody does. And that's, that's part of the problem is that you can, you can nail those caveats all you want, but there are people who are going to basically copy paste that code I was literally, I was just just reading an article the other day about like top, it was like top 10 cryptographic bonehead things on Stack Overflow or something, you know, something to that effect. I don't remember the actual name of the post, but he went through like 10 examples of crypto samples that were either at the top, that were either marked as the solution, top answer or close to the top answer that were just flat out wrong, that were just doing it wrong. And um, you know, mea culpa, I'm as guilty as the next person in terms of, I have definitely done the, the stack overflow search, copy paste, you know, for a solution. And most of the time, my biggest concern was, okay, I'm going to put a comment here pointing to the stack overflow answer. So at least the person gets credit for, you know, for the, for the code. But did I spend enough time making sure that that code did what I think it did and that it did it with good practices? Mm, maybe not every time, right? And I think we do have to be we do have to be thoughtful about as we're teaching, right? It is important to teach best practices. And some of those best practices are, yep, there's probably not a programmer alive who has not at one time or another Googled for a solution to some for something and copy pasted and like, okay, I'm gonna just call it done, right? But as an industry, as a as a discipline, we have to, we probably have to remind one another periodically that that's how we end up with breaches, right? That's how we end up with, I was reading this morning about, apparently there is a, I wasn't aware of these folks, but apparently there's a chain of slot machine parlors in the, in the American West. I think it's Dolly's or something like that. They're, they're Nevada based. They've got some 173. They're essentially restaurants with slot machines. And I think they're, they have restaurants because They have to serve food. They have to have a kitchen that's open a certain number of hours in order to be able to have the square footage devoted to slot machines that they have. 
you know, one of those impenetrable regulations or whatever. Well, apparently they suffered a data breach. And among the things that were listed as being lost were social security numbers, yikes, and Hmm. medical information. And (laughs) both the folks that I had read the reporting on this and my initial reaction was, why on earth would a slot machine parlor have your medical information? Right. Like, there, that seems like maybe a little bit of oversharing. And I, I know that, and this is this is not a laughing matter, like, you know, people who have serious gambling addictions no, yeah. can make poor judgments in terms of a lot of things. But it, like, how badly in do you have to be if you're selling your medical information? To, I, I don't know. Anyway. Well, I, and, I, well but I, th- I think this leads into another topic with okay. shortages of developers, mm-hmm. right? We do have a shortage of developers, but on top of that, not all developers are good developers. There's a lot of bad developers out there, and they're they're not bad necessarily because they want to be bad. Right. But either they they never learned how to do it right, or they didn't have a good mentor, or right, they're used to spaghetti code or just doing whatever they got to do to get it done. Or they have a backlog of 30 apps and they've got a manager who's working 60 hours a week. And the alternative to copy paste is not getting any sleep as opposed to getting very little sleep. Right. And I have no problem with copy paste. The thing is, if you copy paste, it is not going to work for your situation exactly. Mm -hmm. It's just not. And so take the time to understand what you copy does and make sure that you refactor it to fit your need, to suit your need, right? So, yeah. And at the end of the day, that's to some extent another argument for, you know, okay, what level of abstraction makes sense here? Because if you're operating at a higher level of abstraction, maybe you don't even need the copy paste, right? Maybe that's just something the platform takes care of for you. Um, you know, it's not necessarily perfect in every case, but, uh, you know, I think, I think we have to, I think we have to have tools that suit a variety of, of development needs, you know, and I think that fundamentally that's that's one of the places that that OutSystems is trying to trying to to be the solution is okay, you, you know, you need to build something fast. You need to willing to make the trade offs of the decisions the platform is making for you. Again, you look at it as another tool in the tool belt, right? Is it is it going to fit every single use case and need? No, but I would say the same thing goes for like you know we went through the the, the phase where everybody wanted microservices, right? So we've got REST and now we have to, you know, we have to microservice all the things, right? They all have to be independent. They all have to be versionable. They all have to have independent databases. Is that really the right solution for every single application? Like that's just crazy talk, right? And it's it's like, but I think we go through these phases as an industry where, you know, it's kind of the flavor of the day, kind of still waiting for when, you know, low code becomes the flavor of the day. (laughs) I think I think pro, pro devs do definitely. I mean, you know, you get a little bit of that kind of stink eye look from from pro devs when when they hear the term low code. And I think you know, I think one of the challenges of communicating between pro devs and kind of a, a low code idea is that there tends to be a lot of marketing speak around the idea of low code. And one thing, and I, I have these conversations routinely with lots of folks internally, is, is just software developers, generally speaking, have highly refined bullshit detectors. And so if you're speaking a language that's targeted towards, you know, say the C-levels or the, the people who are writing the checks, that message is not going to resonate at all with software developers, right? And so 
trying to help software developers understand what what is this tool exactly doing? Like what what's the point of this? If I tell you, hey, I, you can build apps ten times faster, that is absolutely not something that a software developer cares about. Because what a software developer often often hears with that is, oh, you want to put me out of a job, right? Whereas whereas my my basic attitude about tools like this is, okay, there's a lot of kind of BS, boilerplate stuff that has to happen in an application, period, full stop, right? There are things that every application is going to have to do. Basic CRUD stuff, basic screens, basic things like that, like that that are just baked into the cake. You have to have them. If I can get those out of the way super fast and spend most of my time on the interesting problems that need to be solved in that app, right? A, I'm not spending time writing things that are boring and my value goes up as a developer, not down, right? Because the stuff up here in my head that I've learned over the years in terms of how do I solve these, these tricky problems of these screen interactions or how, I, how I'm going to store this data so that, it's, you know, so that it's easier to access and performs well, right? Those are the things that are a better use of my time as a as a developer. So, it's it's going to be interesting to see what what the what this industry looks like in 10 years. Um because I think that the status quo just can't really work. We don't have enough people writing software and I'm not convinced that we can mint enough software developers in part because of exactly what what you said, right? There there are a lot of bad software developers. Again, right? I'm not mad at them. I'm, you know, right. I mean there are people who are, let's face it, there are some people out there who are knuckleheads who you just want to smack them upside the head, but that's not the vast majority. Like the vast majority of people are well-meaning. They want to write good code. They either don't know how, they don't have enough time to do it right, right? Or they've never been, been mentored. Like there's a lot of reasons for it, mm-hmm. but filling the funnel with new software developers is not going to make that problem go away. It's going to make it worse, right? So... I'm not sure that it, that the supply side is the perfect is the perfect solution. So I think that even as you see, like on the you know on the Microsoft side, things like Power Apps, right? There's there's mm-hmm. definitely I think you know pretty much every vendor. I mean, like Oracle's got their own version of it. Um, you know, you're seeing all of the major platforms are looking at okay, how do we take that abstraction up the next level? Yeah, I was so, going to ask if the out out systems products is is along the same lines as the Power Apps. So there are some similarities. Um, OutSystems is really, I think, more of an end-to-end platform. I mean, Power Apps definitely ties into a lot of the other micro, a lot of the other Microsoft platform technologies. But you know, I think OutSystems both has, in some ways, more in some ways less opinionated approach to developing software. But I think because we're also somewhat a little more like Switzerland, we've got a, an ability to to integrate more freely with a lot of other platforms. And the other thing is like the tricky part with something like Power Apps is licensing really kind of trips people up there because oftentimes Power Apps is sold as included with, you know, like a, a Microsoft service agreement or whatever they're calling them these days, you know, like these enterprise agreements that companies buy and they start getting into it. And then when they realize, okay, I want to start using this, then the price tag keeps ticking up. Whereas kind of a SaaS platform, once somebody's into OutSystems, they kind of know what they're getting into up front, right? And I'm- I can tell you from from experience because I'm doing Power 
power apps right now at work. Um, yeah, licensing is a, is a is a whole kettle of fish. It's just so complex. <laughs> yeah, and that's I mean, unfortunately, that's something that hasn't changed from my days at Microsoft. Is it's like one of the things that was an absolute blessing of my time at Microsoft is that I didn't have to deal with licensing because every time I got into a conversation with somebody about well, this person's unhappy with this or this person's trying to you know renew this enterprise agreement. Like the licensing stuff is, and and the reality is like, I, I'm not mad at Microsoft for it. They're a huge company with a gigantic portfolio of products. It's going to be complicated, right? And I think I absolutely, in my, in my heart of hearts, like I don't think there's anybody at Microsoft who's trying to make this difficult, right? I think that they want to make it as simple as possible. They, you know, they want to encourage people to pay them money. So it doesn't make sense for it to be insanely complicated. But I think when you have that many moving parts, it's just kind of baked into the cake, right? You know, so I kind of take it on faith that that the people involved mean well and try to do the best they can. But it, it but it is kind of complicated. But yeah, I mean, I, so like at the end of the day, I work for Outsystems, so obviously I have an iron in that fire, right? I have that's that's kind of my bias. So I'll declare it right out there from from the get go. I would encourage people, regardless of what platform you choose, at a minimum. I think developers are smart to start looking into low and no code platforms just to understand what the tools look like, right? Because I think that the industry is going to be moving in this direction more and more. And that may be moving towards OutSystems. Could be that five years from now, I'm out of a job. <laughs> OutSystems isn't around anymore. Who, who knows? I mean, I, if, if I was a smart person and could predict the future, I'd have sat on my Microsoft stock and probably been doing pretty well right now, maybe be retired. Obviously, I don't have that particular crystal ball. But I do think that, you know, when you look at the scope of the shortages of talent versus the the amount of software that needs to be written, something's got to change. And I think some of that's going to be, some of that may be automation. Although I have to say, again, going back to that, that article about some of the stack overflow answers and the and the badness in them, that I forget what the oh gosh what was I guess it's a GitHub that's doing the the autocomplete AI code wizard or or whatever that was something that came out a couple of weeks a couple of three weeks ago or a few weeks ago at this point. But if you train up an AI to help you code, and that AI is based on code that's not necessarily a hundred percent good, you're just perpetuating the problem at that point, right? So it's like. Automation can only go so far in that if you have again, it's that it's that kind of guy go garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> so if you're not super careful with how you're training your AI, what you end up with may work in certain scopes and in other scopes it might not. I think access was probably one of the first low code applications <laughs> that people could actually build things in. Yes. Well, and, the reason and, I'm laughing is because there are people at my company that are still using access today. Absolutely. As a back end for yep. some scripting. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's. Yeah, some technologies never die. There's yeah. still people writing FoxPro programs too. Right? I know people who are passionate about FoxPro. And on the, for, those, you know, for those workloads and those, those use cases where it works, can you really blame them? Right. I mean, yeah. if it's, yeah. it, it, you know, I mean, I, I think what it's, it, it's, I think it's kind of an old military saying that, you know, like if it's stupid and it works, it's not stupid. Well, kind of, right. It's the kind of the same thing with COBOL. Yeah. Right. It's been around for forever. There are people who know it and people who like it. And yep. 
most new developers are never going to learn it. So, you know, you, you benefit from having been in that position. Hey, uh, you know, good yeah. for you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Technology. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do. Thank well, goodness. I think, I think we should start getting towards the end there now and yeah. uh, we should probably move on to picks. What do you guys think? Sound good? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I could throw questions at him for the next two hours, but uh, nobody wants to listen <laughs> to, to me in my rambling. So yeah, let's go. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood. And I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say, Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have this situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. All right. I think I'm going to go first this week. I've been watching a new show that I found and it's not on Netflix. It's actually on AMC. And I think it's, it might even be AMC plus only. So you got to have their streaming service, but I found it on Amazon, Amazon Prime. So you can just buy this buy it by the season rather than subscribing to the whole AMC plus service. So it cost me 10 bucks for the first season, which is, you know, like 10 shows or something like that. So, and the show is called Discovery of Witches. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it at all, but uh, it, it's actually a pretty good show. It's about witches, it's about vampires, and it's about demons. And hmm. a okay. witch a witch kind of falls in love with a vampire when they shouldn't be because each of the different races or whatever is supposed to be separate. And there's all those, also this mysterious book that only shows up for this witch in this library. And it actually is uh, really interesting. So... I, there's a couple seasons of it out, but uh, I've only gotten partway through season one. So if you like fantasy shows about witches and vampires and demons, but it's not the it's not the typical character caricature of, of a witch and a vampire and stuff like that you would think of. Um, so it's not it's not Underworld where you had the movies where you have the werewolves and the vampires and two fall in love. It's it's <laughs> it's 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 more realistic. <laughs> Yeah, are there sparkles involved? And they're in London. They're in London, and it's pretty cool. I mean, she didn't really know that she was a witch when the show first started, and she kind of, you know, learned it along the line. And so she's actually uh, 
somewhat somewhat powerful witch. So, but she's still trying to discover herself, at least as far as I've gotten. So, I wish that could happen to me. Check it out. Right, I'm just going along, doing my thing, living my life, and then all of a sudden, bam! I realize I have these superpowers. (laughs) You're a wizard, Harry. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Yep. You just need your own personal Hagrid. Yeah, there you go. Right. Why? What's your pick? This week, so I've been um, so the crypto is kind of becoming this like big thing right now, um, and but it's a little bit like mysterious. So this week, I thought I'd actually just try to learn about what, what I guess crypto development was was actually all about. So my pick this week is actually the um, the Ethereum development tutorials. Um, I actually just I think last weekend I basically just had a couple of hours free, um, and I just did the Hello World thing, and I was able to basically create a a smart contract like. In, in like in an hour or two so and yeah learn a little bit more about how ethereum and what stuff works so i thought it was pretty interesting yeah so what's cool. the first lesson of crypto what is the first lesson i don't know <laughs> don't, 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 don't roll buy. your own crypto oh, don't get yeah. into crypto first rule of crypto. you know how to do crypto <laughs> <laughs> it's recursive yeah. there you go the, yeah. the main thing i know about crypto is that i'm not smart enough to do crypto mm. Yeah, I, I don't think I am either. I just thought it'd be good to kind of just yeah, just do something a little bit different. Um, see what it looks about. You know? It's always good to do fun things that you're you know stretch yourself. Yeah. Yes, most definitely. All right, Caleb, what's your pick? My pick is also a TV show. I've been picking a bunch of those lately, but you know. Anyway, this one is fantasy kind of deal. It has some sci-fi in it. It's an HBO show called The Nevers. In the first season, there's six episodes. It's really good. It's it's well done, and they've they leave a lot of room for for growth in, in the next season, which I think they've already said they're definitely doing season two. So if you like, you know, sci-fi fantasy and superpowers and mythological creatures and stuff, you, yeah, it's uh, I think you'll like it. So the numbers. Right. Well, I am a superhero, you know. Well, yes, so you are. Maybe I like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andrew. What's All your right, so I, I'm going to go with the obvious one, which is people should check out OutSystems. We'll have a link go. there. Uh, but and I have a couple of... your favorite 3D printer. I have a... Oh, my favorite 3D printer. Well, so would it be the favorite 3D printer that I don't own or the one that I do? So <laughs> I own two, three, two Ender 3s. They're great printers. They're cheap. But they're definitely printers that you need to be willing to tweak and modify and tune. So if you if you love that kind of thing, you learn learn that way. It definitely would go if you're going to get a 3D printer. Ender 3 is a cheap way to get into the hobby. However, if you're really just a set it and forget it, you just want to be able to upload a model and have it print, would definitely recommend Prusa i3. Mark, I think it's Mark 3. I don't remember what their latest is. But the Prusa printers in general, uh, P-R-U-S-A is, the, is the, the name of the guy who created these they have a fantastic reputation they're just they're a bit more spendy like the prusa mini i think is about 400 bucks the full-on prusa assembled is about a thousand and i just haven't been able to bring myself to pull that trigger and (laughs) i want one but i just like the the ender 3 is 200 bucks or less if you get it on sale so it's just kind of been a a no-brainer for me because i'm cheap and scottish and and I'm willing to spend the hours that it takes to tweak and replace parts and you know tune it and get it working the way that I want. But now you have me sidetracked. That wasn't actually my pick. Um, <laughs> so I actually did picks, have. That's fine. I did actually have a couple of of TV shows I was think, thinking about. One is one that I watched with my teenage son. 
based on a, a book series called Alex Ryder. Um, it's on Amazon. They did uh, season one. I think they're, they're filming season two, which hopefully will be out fairly soon because the problem with watching it when we did is we got through the entire season, boom, 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 boom. And then it's like, and now we have to wait. Not perfect, but it's a good action-oriented, you know, teenager as spy sort of uh, show. And then the other one that I that I've been watching or going back to is an old school one called The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. And it stars Bruce Campbell, who is an absolutely cheesy but hilariously funny kind of B-movie actor. And the whole Briscoe County series is full of just bad puns and dad joke type humor and whatnot. I It probably doesn't hold up quite as as well in some ways as uh let's just, let's just say what was came out oh i don't know i figure out i'm trying to find the link for it anyway it, it's probably 20 years old plus so it does you know it's a product of its era but it's a western it's a western with some modern flair to it so it's kind of pseudo sci-fi western so it's it's a it's a bit of a romp if you like cheesy comedy Give it a whirl. I think it's on Amazon with with ads, so you don't even have to spend any money. And if you hate it, don't write me hate mail. <laughs> All right, That's great. what I got. Great, great. Thanks, Andrew. You bet. Uh, it was really nice to have you on the show. If if our listeners want to reach out and get in touch with you, ask questions, what's the best way to do you know, for that hate mail? That? So, <laughs> yeah, so, so they can they can reach me via my blog at devhammer.net. As I mentioned, it's not, I don't blog frequently. Um, they can also find me if they're interested in video content. If you go to youtube.com and search for OutSystems, you'll find our OutSystems YouTube channel. And I've got a bunch of content up there. We've got some series called Quick Hits. And then we've also got another series, as I said, coming out, the, the OutSystems Crash Course, which hopefully the first couple of episodes will be coming out here shortly. And uh, yeah. All right, cool. nice, great. If our listeners want to reach out and get in touch with the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can find me uh, on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. Oh. Yeah, I was actually finding the link to YouTube OutSystems. So you caught me. I was cheating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm Caleb Wellscoats. Great show, guys. Yeah. And, yep. Thanks, Andrew. Well, thank you. Appreciate you having me on. We'll catch everybody else on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all. Yeah. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.